Shalom and welcome everyone to the ICJ webinar series. We're doubling down this week with two webinars. Yesterday we spoke with Brigadier General Avigdor Kahalani, giving us a comparison between the uh, 1973 Yom Kippur War and what happened on October 7th. We're still uh, locked in this uh, conflict with Hamas in Gaza and Israel trying to fend off other enemies on all its borders, it seems. And uh, today, uh, our guest is uh, a good friend of mine for many years, Saul Singer. Uh, we'll give a little more on his background, but good to see you, Saul. Good to see you, David. Now, uh, Saul is the uh, co-author of the book Startup Nation, which really uh, found a huge falling, a huge readership, I guess, what, around six years ago, eight years ago, uh, all over the world. I understand the Chinese Communist Party had 60,000 copies printed in Chinese for all their mid-level bureaucrats. That was, it was big in China. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, Saul, um, uh, you know, has a new book out with the same co-author, uh, Dan Sonor, uh, it's called The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World. It's by Shimon and Suster, uh, just published November 7th, one, week, one month after the October 7th war. I know Saul, in preparing for your book launch as successful authors already, co-authors, uh, you had all sorts of plans, but this war has sort of changed a lot of it, and we do want to get your insights into um, how Israeli society is so resilient despite its divisions internally and all the challenges that it somehow it always seems to overcome everything. But uh, Saul and I have known each other uh, since the early 90s when I uh, lobbied for Israel from 91 through 95 in Washington, in Congress, and Saul was a foreign policy defense advisor for Senator Connie Mack, and he was uh, uh, very helpful in several initiatives that we had there, and always appreciate him. He made Aliyah, probably a little ahead of me, started working for the Jerusalem Post as their editorials page editor. Uh, Saul, I think it was right about the time you were leaving to write the book, that I, you uh, sort of recommended me and the Christian embassy to partner with the Jerusalem Post on the Christian edition. So we didn't work too long together as colleagues at the Post, but you, you know, become a successful author about Israeli innovation technology, but now you've got something more uh, uh, about the secret of Israeli society's resilience. We want to hear about that and sort of apply it to this uh, a massive challenge Israel has right now with jihad on all its borders and having to root out uh, Hamas from Gaza and get back these these hostages. But uh, give us a little more on the genius of Israel, why, why you wrote the book, and what is its overall message about Israeli society? Well, we actually, we had the idea of writing about the book when we stumbled on some metrics that were very surprising to us about how Israel compared in the world. The first one that stood out uh, as a sort of a fun fact that people see is that uh, according to the World Happiness Report that comes out every year, 
Israel scores very high. Uh, a few years ago, it scored about uh, 12 and then eight and now four. Mm. Uh, uh, this past uh, most recent report, which was based on a survey that came uh, was done in 2022. So we don't know how this year has affected uh, anything, but number four in the world. That's, that's what's What's surprising is that a lot of Israelis, they know how to complain and all, and you've got such immense challenges, division at home, troubles on all your borders, and yet still uh, optimistic about the future. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. The other countries that are up in the top 10 are basically all the the Nordic countries, and we're not exactly uh, in a situation like Sweden here. Um, so how could it be that Israelis are so happy where the question that determines happiness is really one about life satisfaction. They ask people, how satisfied are you with your life on a scale from one to 10? And by that measure, uh, Israelis scored very high. So this was very strange. So we started looking into it. And so we thought maybe if we looked at the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, what's called deaths of despair which is um, some uh, uh, a phrase coiz- coined in the United States to uh, to include deaths of, uh, from suicide, alcohol, uh, abuse, from drug abuse. You combine all those causes and you get deaths of despair. And if you look at the OECD, all the rich countries, Israel has the lowest of these kind of deaths. So this is a much more objective figure uh, than the happiness thing. Uh, and then we started looking at other things like longevity. Israel has among the highest longevity in the life expectancy in the world, a year higher than, say, Germany or, or France, and four years higher than the United States. Um, the sense of optimism, all the polls. And the biggest thing, I... I think that just that's completely off the charts and in fact violates every law of demography is the fertility rate. Basically you have um, around the world the, the, the law the iron law of demography is as countries get more productive, they get less reproductive. What happens is every country in the world as it gets richer, the fertility rate goes down. And the richest countries have the lowest fertility rates, and they're all significantly below replacement, which is 2.1. Below replacement, you start aging and shrinking. Above replacement, you're young and growing. This is a problem in Europe, especially. Yeah, the Europe, uh, the average in the OECD is about 1.6, and here it's about three, so it's about double. Um, so we are well into the camp of young and growing, while Europe is and Japan and and you know the Asian countries in the United States are aging rapidly and shrinking, and that is it changes everything. It changes the outlook of the country. I mean, how do you think about the future if the country is shrinking and aging? And here, we do think about the future. In fact. Having children, you could say, is the biggest bet you could make on the future. Yeah, and that's what we're doing. And it's not just the ultra-Orthodox. Some people think that that must be 
the explanation. The explanation, but if you just you know look around Tel Aviv, the normal number of kids is three, and if you have four, it's like extra credit. It's probably the one place in the world where we're having another child is is higher status and considered you know bonus points. Uh, and you know, so metric after metric, Israel stands out, and that's what we tried and wanted to figure out what's behind this. So it's it's uh, you say in the book, uh, some countries excel in fostering happiness, but not in reducing despair. Israel is exceptional in both. Then. Uh, I guess if you are optimistic about the future, you're, you're more ready to bring in children in, into this world. That when you get that age and face that question, you do. But what what is it that holds Israeli society together, this common bond? I mean, uh, I think as you're writing this book, you're probably going through COVID, and, and Israel became sort of a test case for for COVID vaccinations, and I, I'll give you a little warning. A lot of the Christian audience are not so positive. But then you had you're coming, you're finishing the book right in the middle of the judicial, the heated judicial debate here, and yet you're saying to the world, "Don't worry about the divisions. This country's going to hold together, and it's really being tested now." But what whole, what's the glue? So. I think, you know, if you really want to put it in very simple ther- terms, it's that Israelis feel like they're all in the same boat. Um, that's true as Israelis. I think there's a sense of Jewish peoplehood. There's a sense of, of Jewish history. There's a sense of purpose. Uh, there's a sense of belonging, of solidarity. And and these things are very deep, and they're, they're, they're inculcated in people from a very young age. Uh, the culture is telling you from an early age that it's not just about you, that you are not just an individual, that you are part of a group, that you are part of something larger than yourselves. Um, you know, I, we just give a, a, an example that, um, you know, as someone who grew up in America, you know, it really struck me. Uh, that in classrooms here in Israel, the teachers and the students and the parents all consider themselves failures if the com- if the classroom is not migubash, that's the word in, in Hebrew, is not coalesced, is not connected as a group that doesn't have any group feeling. You know, in America, the, the, the classroom is not even a thing. It's not a it's not something that exists that you can you can bring together. Here, it's all important, even more important than you know, math scores. Is is the class you know united uh, in some way? And then you have, of course, youth movements and these wonderful gap year programs. And then in the army itself, that's the ultimate form of of unity, where you can only do things as a unit. You learn that you have to accomplish missions, and missions can only be accomplished as a group, as a unit. And so the unit is everything. And you're fighting for your country and your community and your family 
and uh, all these things bind Israelis together. Yeah, I, I know there's this uh, sort of tension, part of the gap between, say, the American Jewish community, which you used to be a part of, you're, you made Aliyah, I, th- I guess Dan Sonor in, in his world, he's still American Jewish, and you bringing an Israeli perspective, but you've got this uh, really staunch American individualism versus a sort of a collective mentality here in Israel. I mean, that that uh, tension is there, but you, you feel part of something greater, and it gives a meaning to life. Is this, is this it? Yes. I, you know, you, you look at what well, are the components of happiness. There was, there was an 80-year study, in fact, it's still ongoing at Harvard, where they, they started uh, examining very closely, I think, about 40 Harvard students in the 19, uh, uh, right around World War II, and just following them through life and to see how they turned out in terms of their, you know, their marriages and their careers and everything. And, uh, and at the end of this, after, you know, 80 years of study, uh, the, uh, head of the study that he gave a very, uh, Robert Waldinger, he gave a very, uh, successful Ted talk about this in book. Uh, everyone would ask him, so what, what's the secret to happiness from this study? And he said, it's one word, it's relationships. It's, and, and this is because we're social animals. We need human connection. If we don't have connection, we actually get sick. We get depressed. Loneliness, there are studies that show that uh, loneliness can be as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Mm. And Israelis have less of this. They have much more human connection at every level. I mean, the family, I think, is maybe the most important one. And we have a chapter in the book. My, my favorite chapter title, I think, is Thanksgiving Every Week because we have this ritual in, in Israel that's very strong. Dinner. It's Shabbat dinner, Friday night dinner. It doesn't matter. It's obviously originally a religious ritual. Uh, uh, the beginning of Shabbat is Friday night and having dinner. A uh, special Shabbat dinner, a blessing on the on the wine, on the bread. Uh, but secular Israelis as well, they may not do the blessings, but the family gets together. You go to your parents' house, you bring the kids, and you better. Uh, we have a, a quote from Noah Tishby, basically saying, "If you don't show up at your parents uh, every week or every other week, you're in trouble." Mm-hmm. Uh, so. This is multi-generational. It's, it's, it's the grandparents, the kids, and the grandkids getting together every week. And so in, in other places, you get together once or twice a year. And so, and, and grandparents are very involved in, in helping to raise the children. Uh, that's another part. It, it's, it's another part of the many parts of the explanation of higher fertility is, you know, it's just easier to have kids if your if your parents are 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 pitching in one or two days a week, um, uh, but th- this closeness of of the family and having larger families that's also a factor um, is critical. 
I, I just want to also mention in terms of individualism, what you mentioned before, very important. Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Sachs, uh, great Rabbi Sachs from, uh, uh, I think your, your, your listeners probably know who he is. Um, Chief Rabbi of the UK. Yes, was, uh, he asked Paul Johnson, a British historian, very famous, wrote a book called The History of the Jews. And Sachs was curious. You know, Johnson is a, is a Catholic. Uh, he's written many histories, and he wrote this history of the Jews. And he asked, Sachs asked him, so what's your big takeaway after having studied this so intensely? And he said, the Jews have managed to do something unique, which is to strike a balance between two things. You know, there are, uh, there are countries that are very individualistic, like the West, like the United States, and there are countries that are more collectivist, like the East. But what the Jews were able to do was strike a balance between these two, between the individual and the collective or the group. And that's unique. And he was talking about the Jews, and I think he's very right. But Israelis have added their own layers to this, have reinforced it. And that, I believe, is a, is a big uh, part of the explanation because individualism, at the end of the day, if it's pure, if there's nothing balancing it, is not healthy. It's not human. We're meant to be connected. Yeah. You, you can live in a big city and, and, and feel like the loneliest person in the world. And, it, and the fact that there's uh, two or three million people all around you within five, 10 miles, and you're so alienated from every one of them, it only makes the sense of loneliness worse. And I think this is uh, really a, uh, an urban, uh, urbanization problem in a, in a way. But uh, the, this thing of the collective uh, mentality here, I, I've experienced it as well. And of, of course, a lot of Israeli politics, uh, it's like you vote for your tribe, uh, you know, whatever your ideology or your ethnicity. And, you know, Shas is always going to get so many votes, UTJ, the, the, the left, uh, the European background socialists and whatever you see it. But somehow the nation comes together and you mentioned the army. It's you know they in the U.S. the army was a big uh, melting pot, and you know was used as a, a, to experiment with integration and whatever ahead of society. But here it's a citizens' army, and right now it's fighting a tough battle. How uh, the these unique characteristics of Israeli society and this common collective mentality? How is it helping Israel right now? with the young generation fighting in Gaza? Well, uh, as you know, David, because you're here, um, Israel is now, as you mentioned, you know, just a, a month ago or so, uh, Israel was at the heights, or it's called the depths of division. Uh we were very divided, and in fact, uh, if the war hadn't come, which we certainly wish it hadn't, uh, 
the divisions we saw, which were extreme, might have even gotten worse. They were headed in the wrong direction. And we went essentially within an hour. The people who were leading the protests, immediately when they found out that this was happening on October 7th, many of them literally ran to the front because they were, you know, reserve soldiers. And they immediately took the entire apparatus of organizing the protest and basically went to the military and said, what can we do? And they mobilized and they, they were doing things that normally governments uh, would do, but they were, you know, much faster and more effective. And it, it, we went basically from the, the depths of division to the height of solidarity. What you have here is there's there's a, a word in in Hebrew called sav smonet, which means uh, order number eight, which is the order you get when you're called up to reserve duty. And it seems like everybody in this country has either been literally called to reserve duty, or they are called to do whatever they can, volunteer, cover for all the people who are. Uh, called up, help all the tens of thousands of people, the families of the, those killed, of the wounded, of the kidnapped, of all the evacuees from the north and the south. There's tremendous amount to do, and the whole society is mobilized. And and the, you know, it's it's really hard to describe because you know you think of, I don't know, after nine eleven, people coming together or in London during the Blitz or something, but that the level of, of mobilization and solidarity here is just incredible. And for it to come within minutes of having the worst divisions, it, this really illustrates what we're talking about, is that there's these reservoirs of solidarity that can be tapped into and that protect the country against becoming too polarized, uh, really falling apart. Yeah, it's part of uh, the historic identity of the Jewish people that you're part of a generation that carries the legacy of thousands of years. I, I think that's a, a real uh, bond. I, I You know, um, back in May, we had a three-day rocket war uh, with Islamic Jihad in Gaza, the IDF on the first day, great intelligence, took out three of their their top three leaders. Within a, three days, they had replaced them, and Israel took out those three. They had a great intelligence, precision strikes. Hamas didn't lift a finger. I think that was part of the sort of lull, the, the sleep that Israel was in concerning Hamas, that they didn't join the fight then, despite all the boasts about united fronts, multi-front war. And the the divisions over judicial reform, Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, they all misread it. These reservists who said they wouldn't come in and do their reserve duty, uh, they, they misread that. But it's also, you know, you have to, that is a factor of why they attacked on October 7th. Sadly, that uh, Israel at least looked, the perception to them, they were divided. Yes, so I think that that Israel's learned a lot from this trauma, 
And I think uh, a fundamental and very deep lesson here is that we can't afford to be divided mm. uh, and that we can't afford to have a, a dysfunctional, kind of worse than dysfunction. The government that we have now is, I think, pretty clearly the worst in, in our history. Uh, and we can't afford that either. We, we um, and, and a friend of mine, Misha Goodman, you probably know, um, the way he framed it is that Israelis are sort of fourth generation uh, from the founding generation. And each generation, each successive generation is farther from the memory of what it was like not to have a state. And by the fourth generation, you know, Israelis are, are, you know, pretty sure of themselves. We're getting stronger in every way, militarily, economically, diplomatically. We're getting closer to peace. It looks like we're even going to have peace with the Arab world. And we thought we had the luxury of being divided and not, and not having a good government. And we're realizing that that's not the case. And the nature of what happened really brought us back to, in a way, that first generation to the founding generation. It gave us the memory of what it's like not to have a state. Because on October 7th, we didn't have a state. There were... All those people were massacred, and the the enormous military intelligence and government apparatus that we have did not prevent it. And so this is tremendously traumatic, but it also, I think, gives a feeling like we have to start over in a way. We have to go back to those roots, and we have to clean things up and not take things for granted, and that this... It's so tragic, and yet it's also an opportunity to kind of rebuild the country in a way, in a better way. Yeah, with the help of the hand of God, this is going to turn out to be to be positive. Things will turn around, but it it is true that that ten months of the judicial debate that I you know for me is a, a very caring observer uh both sides deserve credit or blame for brinksmanship and just taking it too far politically uh and at the high holidays uh from rosh hashanah through the end of sukkot the samatora the nation was trying to take a break uh from that debate because the knesset is out if the knesset's out the country's safe <laughs> you know and and but then the army was still on high alert because of all the threats and whatever but it wasn't so bad and that last day that last weekend before the knesset comes back in the holidays are over at Simatur, it seems everyone just relaxed and took a break that they didn't think uh, hamas uh, they they were too busy governing gaza uh, this is this is the sense i have just that one day 
Let's get through this weekend because as soon as the Knesset's back in, the debate starts all over again. Let's get a, a, one last night of sleep. Yeah, no, that, but I think what you touched on there that um, the Brickmanship, I mean, so that's what I was saying is that both sides felt they could take it to a level to the brink. In that uh, you had the luxury. Yeah. And, and we, anyway. yes, and we didn't, we didn't have that luxury. Uh, and, you know, of course, it's possible that Hamas would have done this without, without all this division. It's very possible. But there, that there still is this feeling that we cannot go back to that. If we don't retain the, unity that we have now maybe we can't retain this high level but if we go back to being divided we're finished and it's so clear and so i really think that this is the big challenge going forward we're going to get through this war but what will determine whether we can really dig out of this hole and we will be in a big hole even if we win, for us to get out of this, we have to be united, and that's going to be the test. And that's why this book is so tragically relevant, because it's about exactly that core, is what is it that gives us that solidarity and unity? Uh, what is it about our society that's so special? What is it that makes it work? Like when we say genius, we're really talking about the genius of the people. That's what we're seeing. It's the people. That's where our genius is. Uh, in in this way, we've been able to build a society that can have this cross between individualism and collectivism, a society that gives people meaning and happiness and optimism and a sense of the future. But we have to double down on all that um, and, and appreciate it and understand it. Uh, we're going to need every every bit of it going forward. I um, uh, was very encouraged how so many Israelis living abroad, I think there's as many as a million Israeli citizens who live abroad. A lot of it is sort of a, a, a brain drain you know, well-educated, sharp, high-tech, innovative uh, Israelis getting job, high-paying jobs uh, to move elsewhere. But uh, not only those who got their reserve call-up, but even reserves who didn't get the notice, they all came back. I think the estimates are around 380,000 Israelis who came back. The planes were packed. They took out seats or they put extra seats to put more people in and they're out there fighting and this is this is the the startup nation that you wrote about before all these high-tech junkies and and uh you know uh, incubator uh, guys who've come up with all kinds of they actually want to, to to be grunts back on the ground fighting for this nation that's encouraging yeah i think normally uh in a, a situation like this a war situation you'd have the planes leaving the country would be full and hard to get on. In this case, it was the other way around. It was very hard 
there were so many people who wanted to come back. Uh, there was an LOL pilot flying from Bangkok who, uh, you know, there are a couple hundred young people who, who wanted to get on the plane. And first he filled the empty seats and then he filled the aisles and the galleys and the, it just packed everyone in. Uh, seat belts or not. Uh, sorry? Seat belts or not. <laughs> yeah, no, they just forgot about all that and they just uh, rammed another, I don't know, two dozen people into the plane. Uh, and yeah, all, a lot of Israelis living abroad, uh, you know, dropped everything and came back. Um, if you look at the startup companies, uh, typically 10 to 20% of the, of the company has been called up and it tends to be the, the more senior people. Uh, you know, my, my wife works with a, uh, a startup and, and the CEO comes from the, the top commando unit. He was immediately called up. He's been, been there since October 7th. Um, and that's, that's true across the board. I mean, what, what I think Americans may not necessarily appreciate because for Americans, the military, for most Americans, the military is something else, someone, something that someone else does. Uh, I think less than 1% of, of Americans uh, serve in the military. It's all uh, true. <laughs> yeah. In Israel, it's what every, what everyone does and what the, the elites of the country do. It's not something that other people do. It's it's the elites who are the the officers and and the leaders and and you know uh, and and that's part of what we write about in the book is that our elites are serving elites. Their prestige is actually measured by their level of service, because like say in the U.S. and other places. You know, if you want to judge someone's status in society, you ask them what they do, and you ask them where did they go to school. So here, you ask them what unit did you serve in, and that changes everything, because the the best schools are. It's a dog eat dog world to get into those schools. It's it's one against all, and you're selected for academic excellence. You're not selected for how well you work together with other people. In Israel, you can't get into those top units if even if you're at the top academically or whatever, if you can't work with other people. So, you know, we're selecting for very different kinds of people for very different values. And it affects the society as you're growing up in the military, and then for the rest of your life, it affects everything. Yeah, I know we're seeing it, uh, what's called the Wingate Doctrine, where it's the commanders who lead the troops in the battle. They're out front, and you actually have a higher casualty rate among the officers than the, the regular soldiers, and we're seeing it in, in the high number of reserve officers uh, that are among the fifty-some casualties in in uh, in Gaza right now. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
Let me just uh, share the cover of the book for everyone for just a minute. The Genius of Israel by Dan Sinor and Saul Singer. It's about uh, the uh, surprising resilience of a divided nation in a turbulent world. Division within, challenges and troubles all out around, and yet somehow Israel always seems to overcome. I can testify that from uh, 27 years of living here now, visiting since 1982. I've seen the, the march of suicide bombers in the second uh, Palestinian Intifada for five years. I've seen uh, rocket wars and, and COVID, and no matter what, you know, Israel always manages to pick itself up, dust itself off, and keep, keep moving. Uh, Saul, give us, give us uh, a positive, optimistic picture of what, what's ahead for Israel uh, are, are we Christians? We're praying for for this nation. Uh, are we? Are our hope and our trust uh, in the right place for Israel? So first of all, I, I wanna I wanna thank the people on this Zoom for your support, um, the support of of Christians around the world is very moving to us very important. There was a rally, uh, I guess it was yesterday, on the mall. 290,000 people. Yes. One of the biggest rallies ever on the mall in Washington. And there were a lot of Christians there. Yeah. And, uh, and we really need to stand together for Western civilization. It's really the, the forces of civilization against barbarism and the people who support barbarism. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, and, you know, the, the situation with anti-Semitism is, is horrible. But I, what, I, what I think people don't realize is that the uh, anti-Semitism, whether it comes from the extreme left or the extreme right, is essentially a kind of a, an anti-democratic uh, force of hatred, and the Jews may be bearing the brunt of it as as usual, uh, kind of the most and first. But it's essentially liberal democracy that is being assaulted, uh, hardly from the right, but the right is considered extreme, and we we know that they're extreme, and we we don't accept them. The problem is on the left, where I don't think people fully recognize, maybe until now, how dangerous this kind of ideology is. Um, and, and you know, Jews right now feel physically unsafe. And that is a, is a huge shock. And it's a terrible thing. And the, the, the whole country needs to stand up against it. Uh, and also, you know, I just came back, I literally landed this morning from speaking in, in places like Atlanta and Palo Alto. Um, and uh, I spoke to Jewish audiences, basically, and they're in shock. And what I told them is that one of the, as I mentioned before, the best way of understanding why Israelis have some level of solidarity is that we're all in the same boat. And now, 
American Jews are in that boat in a way that they weren't before. And we need each other. And we need to come together, the Jews of America and the Israelis. But I would broaden that further. And Christians and Jews need to come together and we need to fight all this together. Yeah, I think as a, as a ministry, the Christian embassy has recognized this, that m most of the West is, is post-Christian. There are still many who hold to our Judeo-Christian values, but uh, radical Islam declared a war on us several decades ago, and it comes in different waves and in different means, whether it's uh, hijackings, blowing up, you know, skyscrapers in Manhattan, or what happened on October 7th, whether we like it or not, or whether it's how we identify ourselves or whatever, it's, it's a holy war declared against Jews, Christians, because they're the ones most standing in the way of their apocalyptic vision of world conquest. And uh, we, we are in the same boat with you, Saul, and more and more Christians uh, hopefully are waking up to this. It's not something we've chosen. We, we're not looking for another crusade. The war has been declared on us. It's just Israel's on the front line of this battle, and, and it's our battle, too. We're, we're trying to help wherever we can here in Israel, and, and the Israeli army and the Israeli people are an inspiration to us uh, in how you uh, come together to, uh, to try and withstand this. And we're going to be walking with you the whole way. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, you asked for an inspirational note, so I want to give you a quick story. Um, and this is a story actually from during the, uh, during the protests. Um, and, uh, there were, there was, uh, on that particular Shabbat or Saturday night, uh, the main protest against the uh, judicial reform was in Jerusalem, and the the main protest for was in Tel Aviv, and uh, in the, the train station in Jerusalem, there are these very very long escalators to get up to the to the surface, and the protesters from one were going down, and the protests from the other were going up, and suddenly someone spontaneously starts reaching across and shaking hands with the other side. And then everybody started reaching across and shaking hands. And uh, it became an iconic scene. There was a, a video of this that went viral. Um, and there was even a cartoon uh, uh, in, in one of the newspapers that had one of the, mag the cover of one of the magazines. And it was a brilliant uh, cartoon because it showed the escalators and it showed the people going up and down like angels. And it showed the typical Israeli uh, lying down on the ground with its head on some rocks. And it was obviously Jacob. It was Jacob's dream. It was Jacob's dream. And that's, that's what, you know, Israelis were showing is the angels going up and down. And that was during the heights or the depths of division. And now we've come together and I think, I really think that we're going to do it. We're going to create, you know, a more centrist, functional government. We're going to come together in many different ways and rebuild this country in, in a better way. Uh, so I really am optimistic about the situation.
uh, as bad as it is now. Okay. Thank you, Saul Singer, co-author of the new, uh, first of all, of The Startup Nation, and now a follow-up book, The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World. I didn't, uh, Saul, you probably didn't think how timely your book would be. You thought it would just be a normal uh, book launch, but uh, here we are in this uh, huge challenge, and we thank you for your insights and sharing all this, uh, and we're asking everyone to keep praying for Israel. And uh, um, thank you, Saul, for your time. Thank you, David. Okay. Appreciate it. Uh, you can go and uh, tell your friends about this. It'll be up on our YouTube channel, on our Facebook page. You can uh, rewatch it there or, and, or share it with others. We also have yesterday's webinar with uh, General Avigdor Kahalani talking about the October 7th surprise uh, attack and um, uh, massacre by Hamas, uh, given a little perspective from what the Kahalani faced in the Yom Kippur War exactly 50 years earlier. Also, stay tuned. At the top of the hour, we're going to have our daily global prayer gathering. Please join us for that. Thank you again, Saul. God bless you from Jerusalem.